Hi, and welcome to the first edition of the Baseball Trade Values podcast, which we haven't named yet, but we're going to think of something clever. My name is John Bitzer. I'm the founder and editor of BaseballTradeValues.com. I'm with Josh Iverson, who is the associate editor. Say hello, Josh. How's it going? All right. And we're here to talk baseball trades. Um, We've been at this for a while uh, before we even started the site. We've been kind of fans of, of the topic and did our own, I'm sure, number crunching on our own, and then we kind of started to figure out things. I certainly did. Uh, eventually got to the point where we launched a whole new site last June, June of 2019, uh, just in time for the trade deadline activity and so on, and it's been uh, growing very well since then. So we thought we would kind of give a little color to what goes on behind the scenes and talk about how we do what we do. Yeah, um, we're really excited to be hopping on talking to all of you, explaining a little bit more in depth than we can in a couple hundred word article on our site. Um, and we want to be able to have this as interactive as possible. Uh, we want to be able to answer all of your questions about what we do, how it works. And we hope that this first episode can serve as a nice little uh, background for all of you. That sounds good. So let's get into it. So <clears throat> we get a lot of feedback about like how we come to our numbers on the site. Um, so we thought we'd kind of start there with the basics and then go into some more sort of interesting permutations of that. Uh, but just as kind of a reminder uh, for listeners who, um, you know, even if you're already familiar with it, um, on the surface of things, it's not that complicated. The But underneath the surface is where it gets really complicated. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, so starting with like, how do we value major leaguers? You know, on the site, we have a very simple um, formula equation. It's really just field value minus salary equals surplus value. And what you see is on the site is the median uh, is really the median of the surplus value. And so that's kind of the end result. I know I'm starting to get into math here, so bear with me. Um, and a lot of people think, oh, no, that's a really good player. Why is his number low? And that's probably because he's making a lot of money. And so the field value minus salary, if the salary is high, the surplus will be a lot lower. Um, you know, so, so, but there's a lot of nuance into how we get into field value. Like I said, the, and that's where sort of it's the equivalent of if this player were a free agent, how much money would he make? So if he made $50 million as a free agent over, say, three years, um, you know, that's the field value because basically the market telling us what that that player is worth. Um, what we've tried to do is sort of find out what what goes on behind the scenes to get that number. Um, the most commonly used uh, statistic for that is wins above replacement or war. And we know that's kind of an uber stat that kind of rolls up a whole bunch of other sort of uh, more detailed stats, but it makes it sort of a convenient way to kind of start out. Yeah. How would you define field value in layman's terms? So it's basically, you know, what that player's contribution is to to his team over a period of time. So, so the that, value that they produce on the field. The value they produce on the field. Now, we have a thing on our site called AFV. What does the A stand for? The A stands for adjusted. And that's where it gets complicated because we it, it's not as simple as saying, oh, that's a that's a three war player. Um, now we also have to figure out what is the dollar value of, of one war. Um, and we think it's a little bit over $9 million at this point. So let's just round that over to nine. So if he produces one war, that player theoretically should be worth nine on the field. 
uh, if he's making, say, $4 million in salary, then 9 minus 4 is 5, and that would be his surplus. Um, I've, I noticed on a fan site someone was explaining it very well to them. Uh, the, you know, you could basically play a, uh, pay a free agent the same, you know, it, it would basically, if you paid a free agent exactly what they were worth on the field, the surplus would always be zero. But baseball isn't a perfect model. You have young players who are really making, you know, very little money who are outperforming quite a bit. And then you have older veteran players, and sometimes they're not performing as well as their salary. And so you actually have a negative number as their surplus. So that's why you see some of those on their side as well. Yeah, and this might be jumping ahead a little bit, but um, that dollars per war figure that we're kind of using there, that isn't linear. Um, it's it's a, an eyeball number of about $9 million per win above replacement. But you don't usually see a player that's projected to be worth one win receiving $9 million on the open market. And then there's the other end of it, the Mike Trouts of the world, where he's going to be worth 10 wins, but he's not getting paid $90 million a year. So That's right. It's, it's not a linear process, um, and that is where that adjusted field value uh, name comes into play. We do make adjustments for that, uh, that curve. Yeah. Um, we think it's actually, it looks linear in the middle, but it's really sort of a hyperbolic S-curve where it sort of flattens out at the top. It also flattens out at the bottom. You see a lot of, uh, you know... Zero to one war players, really one war players who are not getting nine million dollars, like Jose Iglesias, who's now in the Reds. He just signed for three million dollars, but if you look at his projections, he's it's mostly because of his defense. He's like a one to two war player, and so you know that there's a lot of bumping around on on the bottom where a lot of sort of you know zero to one ish players are not making what they should be on paper, which is another reason why we think it's not linear. There, it flattens out on the bottom as well. Yeah, and a lot of that goes into something. You'll probably hear us say a dozen times over the course of this podcast, it's that this isn't an exact science. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of a lot of this is tested. It's a model that has been more or less proven to work um, much more often than not. But there are some edge cases. There is a little bit of subjectivity here and there. Um, the baseball trade market is not a perfect market by any means, and our model on the site is just our best representation of that market to the best of our ability. Exactly. And <clears throat> we're trying to split the difference kind of in a sort of uh, 50th percentile, if you will. We know there's going to be, you know, a pendulum swinging one way or the other way. We're going to see overpays of superstars. We're going to see underpays for, you know, lower value people at the other end. So um, that's very true. Um, one of the pieces of feedback that we often get is, you know, why couldn't you make it sort of, you know, variable by team? And I think that's a great idea. And that's one of the things we're looking into for a future enhancement. Because right now, like I said, we're sort of splitting the difference. But that doesn't mean it's the same value. You know, Mookie Betts just went to the Dodgers, who probably paid more than the Padres would have. You know, certainly you can say, well, the Baltimore Orioles would never have traded for him. He would be much less valuable to them because he doesn't really help move the needle for them. But he really moves the needle for the Dodgers to get them over the hump, and they have the money and the resources in the farm to, to sort of overpay, if you will. So that number will vary. So our numbers is our numbers are just a starting point. So I wanted to make that clear. And, and that's where the low, median, high values sort of come into play, um, as well as just internal and external evaluations varying. Um, there is a range for each player. That's right. Now, <clears throat> a couple other points that we should sort of make, make clear is um, the years of control matter. 
You know, it's, it's, we're estimating what that player is worth on the field over a period of time. So the, the amount of time that the team controls that player will dictate quite a bit you know what that value is you often hear the word rental and that's that's generally applied to a value of the value of a player who's you know one year or even less at the trade deadline they may only be available two or three months so the years of control matter the longer period of time usually increases the value if it's a good player if it's not a good player that can go the other way but for the most part we're, we're multiplying that that field value over a period of years so that's another thing to keep in mind yeah, can you go into how we uh, how we project the players over those years? So, <laughs> and that's a good point. the The key word there is project. Uh, we're not looking at the past; we're looking at the future, and that's another thing that sometimes people find curious. Um, oh, this this player was great in 2017, but now we're in 2020, and they may not be as great again. You know, so the projections matter. We're looking ahead, not behind. We're looking at what will they do over their coming years of control now sometimes they're in fact quite often their age you know plays plays a big role in that a player who's over 30 may be sort of declining there are aging curves that we apply but you know one of the things that we're looking at is we're there are there are different public services or public um, projection services pakoda steamer zips and others that are sort of non-branded. And we're doing a weighted value of all of those. I personally think that's the most accurate and we've tested it and correlated it as much as we can to get the sort of the, you know, as much correlation to what, what we see happening in the trade market as we can. It's not a perfect science. Um, it's, it's more of an art, but we do think that, you know, if we just used one of those or if we just use our own, there would be a lot more volatil volatility. If we did a, what if we do a weighted average of those war projections, it does tend to smooth things out and in the aggregate i think is more accurate yeah definitely and on top of that we are also adjusting for inflation though that has slowed a bit mm -hmm. in recent years um so that is again more of an art than a science um but don't fear we are taking that into account the inf inflation of dollars per war yeah um, we always have our eye on that that's right and you know about two years ago, there was kind of a freeze in the free agent market, and you know what we noticed that that there wasn't really any inflation in dollars per war. As you've noticed, it's sort of picked up since then, so um, we're applying that again. Um, and you can see that in the um, you know when teams make a qualifying offer to a pending free agent, you can we can sort of baseline it there. If that went up say three percent, then that's sort of a validation point that that's probably a, a good sort of indicator that that's about what the what the uh, inflation rate is. But there's you know, we'll look at, at free agent salaries and aggregate as well to kind of see, you know, if there was any sort of big change. And if there is, we'll make a change on our end. Okay. Um, I think one of the last things I want to make sure we hit on before we move on to minor leaguers, uh, because that's a whole mm -hmm. different system, a whole different animal, um, are some of the manual adjustments we have to make. So like, like I said earlier, it's at times there are subjective adjustments that we need to make. We try to leave these as objective as possible, but sometimes, you know, a projection system doesn't account for an injury, um, injury right. risk necessarily. Um, so we make manual adjustments for that, um, for roster risk. So that's when a player is maybe out of options and they're kind of a fringe guy. Um, let's take Domingo Santana from a couple years ago when the Mariners acquired him. Um, the return there was just Ben Gamble 
and I believe another relatively insignificant prospect. I'm mm-hmm. blanking at the moment. Um, and everyone was surprised. Domingo Santana is this big power hitter. He's kind of a breakout candidate. Why is he being traded for peanuts? Why are mm-hmm. the Brewers doing this when they're a competitive team? And it was because he was out of options. Gamel had options, could serve as good outfield depth for them. But Santana wasn't a starter. There might not have been room for him on the bench. And so his value was lower. So that's something we take into account. Um, that comes into play with the Rule 5 draft as well for prospects. If they need to be protected, mm-hmm. they are adjusted down for that roster. Uh, we call it roster risk, but I guess you could call it roster necessity in that you have to waste a 40-man spot on this prospect that might not be ready for the big leagues yet. That's right. Um, and and another point on uh, on roster risk is sometimes it's not the best player that, that gets DFA'd from a team. Sometimes it's a guy that doesn't have any options. And because the teams value that flexibility, you know, they will say, oh, I've got to cut this guy instead of that guy, even though, you know, player A might have been slightly more valuable. But it's, it's because so many teams value that roster flexibility and have so much challenge kind of, you know, bidding them all in. So it does decrease their value. Right. And uh, beyond that, one other... Uh, one other manual adjustment we have to make is for the market itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we've found that second basemen in particular aren't quite paid or treated as our model in its, uh, in its originality would expect them to. And that's because a lot of the time second base is just a position that players get moved to if they can't handle shortstop or third base. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of that, we make a slight adjustment down. There was, especially last offseason, uh, the 18 to 19 offseason, um, there were a ton of second basemen on the market. It was a very crowded market for second base, and not a whole lot of teams needed a second baseman because they had internal replacements, be it prospects or failed shortstops that they're moving over. Um, so that's another thing that we always have to keep our eye on. How's the market playing? Um, this this particular offseason, the market the free agent market at least played fairly well. Um, I don't think we saw a position that just was kind of flooded on the market and kind of stayed that way, Um, but it's something we always have our eye on. Yeah, that's right. Um, We do know that starting pitching is always, good starting pitching is always in demand. And so, you know, we we factor that into our calculations as well. Like a good starting pitcher will be very, uh, you know, that that price per war is often higher. Um, And then, <clears throat> but they also get injured a lot more. So then we, it sort of offsets that a little bit. So we're, right. we're making all of those calculations. Right. And none of none of these adjustments, since they're all um, going together, none of them, for the most part, cause a drastic change in a player's value. It just might be, you know, a 10% change at most on the high and on the low side. Mm-hmm. So... I think another sort of important point in general is that, you know, we think probabilistically, sorry, I'm trying to get that word out. It's always a game of probabilities. You know, the the chances of, you know, you can't just put on paper, this guy is a three-war player and be guaranteed that. Because, uh, you know, the, the reality is, you know, that's going to fluctuate a bit. So we have to kind of overall kind of think about, like, what is the what is the real probability of that? And that's what our front offices are doing as well. They've even told, you know, told the, told reporters that. Um, so everyone's just trying to kind of probabilistically make the best decisions they can, and that affects the trade market. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of thinking probabilistically and investments and that type of uh, yeah, do you want to move on to minor leaguers? Yeah. So minor leaguers, valuing valuing minor leaguers is a whole different animal because you don't have the same data that you do with major leaguers. They haven't really produced. I mean, you could argue that they've produced at the minor league level, but you can't really trust those numbers because you know, quite often what they're doing is developing their skills, working on this aspect of their game or that. And so it's not really about their stats. Once they get to the major league level, that's when they're expected to produce. But at the minor league level, they're in development. So and in addition to not yeah. having that solidified, valuable data at the major league level that we can use, the data that we do have, which is, for the most part, just different prospect outlets, that's always conflicting. That's always at odds with each other because 10 scouts can see a guy and they can all have a very, very different opinion of him. So it's, in many ways, it's much more difficult than valuing major leaguers. Exactly. It's, <laughs> to your point, it's even more probabilistic. Uh, and we know not all prospects are going to succeed. There's a high failure rate. There's a high bust rate, even with the top ones. But we do notice that the top prospects have a higher probability of not only making it to the major leagues, but becoming successful. You know, the top of the curve, it's really a long tail. The top of the curve is where the real good ones are, and for a reason. But there's still going to be some busts there. Not everybody's going to make it. But they are generally more valuable because they are projected, I'll use that word again, to be productive major leaguers, and their probability of doing so is much higher. So that's why you'll see a Gavin Lux or, you know, a Mackenzie Gore, you know, being very high, highly valued on our site. And that's why I, I wasn't surprised, frankly, that rumors of, of Francisco Lindor being traded to the Dodgers and the Dodgers wouldn't give up Lux because they valued him much higher than Lindor and our neighbors, our, excuse me, our numbers show that. So, so at the top of that curve, you've got some real high values for that reason. And then it sort of starts to kind of curve down rather steeply into kind of the middling ones. And then there's really low numbers at the bottom where those are the guys who just, you know, have very little probability of making it. So what we're doing is taking the uh, prospect evaluators that are public, you know, the Baseball Americas and, and fan graphs and so on, and, and saying, okay, how would you guys rate these? And normalizing them to a one consistent scale and then translating that into a number. Now, we're basing this on actual research. Uh, fan graphs did a lot of research on this to kind of translate that into trade value, and we're, we're, we're thankful that they did. Um, there was actually some similar research that we found prior to that, which reached similar conclusions, that it's kind of a long tail model. So we've applied that and just kind of extended it down the curve to even kind of the lowest level. We're going 30, 40, 50 prospects deep on our site, which is quite a lot, I know, but we do see prospects being traded that are in the low ones and twos in our, in, in our numbers. And so, so we felt like that was a good thing to do. Right, yeah. Um, there are so many prospects out there and there are so many conflicting reports, as I said, on them that oftentimes we will get it wrong um, just because we don't have that data and maybe the other publications don't have that data either. Maybe there's a lower tier lottery type prospect that Baseball America hasn't seen yet. They're not super high on, um, but another team just happens to be and so they value him higher than the market might, higher than we do. We might not even have them in the system at all. So it's it's a very difficult process when we already have thousands of players in our system to make sure that we have every single one of them that might get traded. We're not going to have every single one of them that might get traded, um, but we have, we believe, 
all of the most valuable prospects for each team and some some teams that runs as deep as 50 or 60. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to your point, uh, Josh, the the um, the fact that we don't know everything is 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 really important. And um, you know, we saw recently with uh, the situation with uh, Bruce Dark Gratterall, who was on the Twins at the time, and part of this proposed three-way trade uh, to the Red Sox, and the Red Sox ended up changing their mind once they saw their medicals. And and fortunately for him, those medicals sort of became a public thing. Um, so one of the editors of Baseball America, J.J. Cooper, was tweeting that, hey, we didn't, you know, we, we knew there was injury risk, but the fact that they actually came out with, you know, this information more publicly is something extremely rare. So even those people who do this for a living have done it very successfully for 50 years or so don't always have access to that inside information, and we'll tell you. So since we're basing it on what they know and translating it into trade value numbers, our numbers will be reflecting that uncertainty as well. Right, and that that's... The perfect example of that kind of situation where I think the Red Sox caught most of the baseball world by, world by surprise with that. And the consensus was that, I believe, was that, yes, there is some reliever risk there, but they might have fallen on the farthest end of that spectrum. And that's why that deal got held up, had to be reworked. And so, as you were saying earlier, we apply, we are dealing with the 50th percentile here. We can't necessarily account for that happening for the Red Sox being the lowest team on his medicals. That's right. So so that's in a nutshell what we're doing with prospects. Um, you know, we are taking into account performance a little bit. Like we will upgrade a, a player here and there because we've noticed that, you know, and it, it makes common sense. If, if a player is sort of cold, you know, even though the minor leagues are primarily developmental, if they're not producing, they generally don't get traded because they know they're quite not quite ready for it or they've kind of stalled out. So we will upgrade, you know, based on performance a little bit here and there. And there's a little bit of subjectivity there, but we do notice that those players tend to get traded more. So they're more attractive, as you would, as you would think. And that is one thing we ran into, I'd say, quite often during the last trade deadline was... We had just launched the site. Maybe we were uh, not quite on top of those performance numbers as we could have been. Plus, there's thousands of players to adjust them for, um, and that is a manual adjustment for the prospects. Um, and so oftentimes, a trade would go through. It wouldn't look quite right. We'd check their performance. They have a 130 WRC plus in high A as a 19-year-old. Adjust that performance up, and there you go. Now the values are equal. There you so. go. Yep. So it does matter. And as you were saying, um, you know, the roster risk part of it matters. If if they're in danger of being lost for nothing in the Rule 5 draft, uh, we will note that as well and downgrade them for that because it's effectively a use them or lose them situation for the team. So as you might expect, you know, a team might not want to trade for a player like that if they can get them for free a few months later. Right, and our process is very different for evaluating pre-ARB players. Can you get into that, explain that a little bit? Well, it gets into a very interesting case of what we do about those situations, those players who fall in between. Players who were prospects, got called up, had some service time, haven't really established themselves yet, or maybe they haven't, it's only been a year, but they're still a little bit green, really haven't broken out yet, maybe haven't hit their stride yet. So they're, let's call them tweeners, they're not quite fully established major leaguers because they haven't had enough data yet to kind of model them that way. But they're also 
not exactly prospects either. So what do we do? <laughs> so those are your, uh, just for some examples, those are your Frank Franklin Barretos. Those are your Carson Fulmers, the guys that have kind of been bouncing a little bit. Um, maybe, uh, maybe they just haven't established themselves all the way. And for them, we have to use a blend between our two models. Mm-hmm. So we use a weighted average of the two, essentially. So if they've got, say, a year of service time and they're not quite established yet, you know, um, we'll weigh that against. We'll, we'll take the the major league model and say, okay, that's that's effectively weighted for one year, you know, against the prospect model. And we find like about three years is about right. And some sometimes, you know, that will vary a little bit if 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 a player really establishes himself early. For the most part, it, it tends to work pretty well. Um, so it basically be one year of, of major league service time weighed against, you know, like a, a equivalent of two years of a prospect uh, model, a one to two sort of ratio. And that generally um, works out well. And the beauty of that is you can kind of, um, you can you can say, okay, you know, if, it's, if it was a highly rated prospect who hasn't quite gotten going yet, you mentioned Franklin Barreto, you know, they, you know, we will say, okay, well, there's probably still some upside there. Um, on the other hand, if they've broken out quite, you know, suddenly maybe they've had a half a year and they've, you know, produced two war, well, that's probably not sustainable either. If they were not a top prospect, maybe that's just sort of a blip. And you see a lot of these one-hit wonders over the years who may just sort of fall back to earth. So it gives us a sense of sort of uh, a perspective and balance if we sort of balance out those two. Right. And... That is something we're always keeping an eye on, um, that kind of waiting process, because just as last offseason, we've seen a case, Luis Urias of the Padres, where we weren't exactly on that value. And a part of that might be because Urias has lost some of his prospect sheen maybe a little bit quicker than we expected by our, by our current waiting system. Um, it seems that at least to the Padres, they weren't necessarily as enamored with him anymore as they were when he was a prospect, even though he doesn't have even, I don't think he even has a full season of service time at the big league level. So that's something we're always keeping an eye on, always um, ready to adjust if need be. Yeah. And that points out sort of a larger problem of, you know, those prospect ratings that we based our value on initially as a prospect might've changed like if those rating services were still rating them, they might have downgraded Urias and a few others I can think of. Um, and that's where it gets a little bit subjective, but our common sense sometimes tells us, yeah, that's probably not if they're not, you know, Dustin Fowler of the A's comes to mind. You know, he was rated as a 55 as a, two years ago. Jarrell Cotton, I'll use another example. He was a 55. Um, and... Uh, Eric Long and Hank and fan, Fangraph said, you know, I was probably too high on him. He's probably a fringy reliever now, and he's probably more like a 40. That's a big difference, right? Now, And, and it's not <laughs> something we have any way of knowing yeah, because yeah. most sources do not publish. Um, Fangraphs does it every year, but even they are not – I mean, they don't do it for every prospect that's graduated. They don't publish um, their updated – evaluations of them after they've lost prospect status so there's no and especially two three years out we don't have this information right so we basically it even though we don't like to get too subjective we're trying to stick to our model as much as possible 
this was a situation where we noticed it was a little bit off, a little bit more consistently. We thought, okay, we're missing something here. It's because those ratings were frozen in time. We were using the prospect rating from 2017 as opposed to what would it be now. We have to guess a little bit, but it's going to be more accurate in the whole if we, if we, you know, just use our common sense. So that's why you'll sometimes see that uh, change. And speaking of change, sometimes we do say you see some changes on, you know, on our site. And let's, so let's talk about why that happens. There's a number of reasons for that. Um, Josh, you want to take the first one? Yeah, so um, our first reason for that is when uh, we have new data available to us. So as we were just mentioning, we use, um, for major leaguers, we use many of uh, the uh, well-known projection systems, Pocota, Zip, Steamer, et cetera. And then for prospects, we use sources like Fangraphs, Baseball America, their prospect evaluation and rankings um, as the core and the basis of our evaluations. So when those, when those websites, when those sources release their updates every season, every off season, some of them do mid-season updates, we adjust our values accordingly. We adjust uh, for those, to reflect those new updates. And so that's why, especially during a time like the off season, when Baseball America and Fangraphs, they don't just throw all of their information out there on November 1st and say, here's all of our new rankings. They kind of roll them out throughout the off season. And that's one of the reasons why some of our values might lag behind a little bit at times. It's because, hey, Fangraphs hasn't released their new prospect rankings for this team but this player just got traded and the industry is now lower on him than they were a full year ago so that's why it looks different um, so we are constantly updating that information when it does become available to us but to an extent it's a little out of our control of when it becomes available to us yeah so again we could make it up but that's probably not a good idea. We don't want to be doing their jobs for yes. us. Yes. Neither, <laughs> so. neither of us pretend to be prospect evaluators, nor do we pretend to pretend to be um, projection system experts. Right. Um, um, we do have to use um, some placeholders at times because you know we need something there. Um, but we think we're close. But the um, but the point stands. So so front offices obviously have robust you know R and D departments and analytics departments and, and all kinds of data. You know, they're not dependent on the same public services that we are. So they're a step ahead of us. Um, so when we, you know, when we update, you know, to your point, Josh, you know, it's it's going to come in dribs and drabs depending on, on when these uh, numbers come out and when, they're, and when we change it. And we're, we, just to remind people, we're doing that because we're trying to be as accurate as possible to kind of stick to our weightings. Um, but some will be lagging behind. Um, so we'll try to do the best we can until that happens. But in the meantime, you know, we're hopefully that number doesn't change too much. Hopefully you don't see a huge amount of spiking um, because we're trying to sort of smooth it out over time. But they will change a little bit here and there. But you know what? Maybe that keeps it interesting. So that, that trade you proposed, you know, with the guy who was worth 20 last month, maybe he's worth 18 now. Okay, try again. Maybe you get another one on the other side of the trade to make it up. So it's, we would like it to be perfect. We would like it to be always in sync. But unfortunately, you know, that's one of the reasons why it can't be. Yeah, and that, that segues well into our second reason for changes, reason for updates. And that's something we did touch on a little bit earlier. It's when new player information becomes available. It's kind of along the same lines, um, but it's what we mentioned before with Brewstar Gratterall, where we had no way of knowing that 
the injury, the market's injury perception of him was uh, the way it was, that they were so scared that he was a future reliever. Uh, we still don't necessarily have any knowledge of whether that's a market-wide uh, opinion of him or if the Red Sox just share the extreme or on one extreme of that spectrum. But regardless, there is more fear than we anticipated, and so we adjusted down slightly. We adjusted him for injury. Um, similarly, if a player is suspended midseason, obviously their trade value is going to take a hit. If they have become an everyday player when they previously didn't have playing time and now they're um, now they're final like if they were a blocked prospect before and the outfielder in front of them got injured and now they're having full playing time that could also cause an adjustment yeah in most cases the injury uh, is you know cut and dry somebody just oh my gosh they just went down with Tommy John surgery and about for a year and a half so okay then we we, we we're going to factor that in because it's widely reported um you know uh, so so but in, in in to your point sometimes we don't know we, we can't necessarily infer you know some we've got some friends who are you know really you know good at analyzing pitchers and saying man, he lost a tick or two on velocity he's probably going to be injured soon and sometimes that's true but we can't make that assumption so we're mm-hmm. going with when it's really you know for the most part when it's it's clear in news reports yeah we we find out that his value is going down the same time that you do yeah in these cases right so the next way we change and i'll take the next one is um you know during the course of the season, um, you know, as performance data starts to come in, and you know, from April, May, and June, you know, you'll start to see the numbers change as well because we're reflecting that player's performance. And what we're doing is weighting that new information against the projections that we started the year with. Um, so we don't necessarily want to just say, okay, well, we projected this player for two WAR, and ignore it completely because he's off to a great start. And now at the same time if he's on a four war pace doesn't necessarily mean he's going to continue that pace so we have to keep regression in mind so weighting them you know based on sort of the full year projection against the sort of two or three months of data that we start to see in june and july hopefully gets us pretty close to the ballpark that we want to be in yeah and an addendum to that that um i think we briefly hit on earlier um is the trade deadline itself and the extra month of team control the extra month of team control that we add on for players that are projected to help their teams in the playoff push um so for a trade target let's say the mookie bets trade uh was a mid-season deal the red sox were out of the race the dodgers were pushing into october they think they're going to be playing an, a seventh month of the season in october that is a part of their um evaluation of Mookie Betts is that he can help them in October in that month. So right around mid-season, maybe a month before the deadline, month or two before, uh, we go in and identify some of these trade targets where it's conceivable that their acquiring team would be acquiring them for October. And we add on a little, an extra month of value to uh, to their value. That's right. It's sort of the October bonus, as we like to call right. it, you know, and because we, we know logically that if they're getting traded at the deadline, it's to a contender. And the reason that would be the case is because that con- that contender has an eye on the playoffs. And so they're trading 
for that intention, for that extra service time in October. Obviously, we don't know how far they would get into October, but their intention is to use that player in October when it really counts in the playoffs. So that, mm-hmm. so for that reason, it increases that player's value effectively another month. And depending on how you value that, it could even be a little bit higher depending on the value of that. You know, if the Dodgers really want that World Series that's been you know, um, that they haven't quite hit on in the last few years, they might even go a little further. So, um, you know, but we can't assume that that's the team they're going to. So we're just sort of giving them an extra month of service time based on that that assumption. And that's why we didn't have that month of service time added on for bets right now is because the second team in that conversation was the San Diego Padres. Mm -hmm. And now if you're acquiring a year of Mookie bets, it's likely to make a playoff push. But the Padres aren't in anywhere near the same situation as the Dodgers. They have a much more flawed roster. You can't even guarantee that they make the, pro- the postseason with Betts. So we, and we had no idea where Betts was going. He could go to another one of those like fringe, mediocre teams. So generally hard to make that call. Whereas if it were July 1st and the Padres were three games behind the Dodgers for the NL West title... Um, more often than not, a team that's acquiring half a season of a rental is doing so, of a star caliber rental especially, is doing so with the postseason in mind. Exactly. There will be exceptions, though. Last uh, last year at the trade deadline, when the Reds traded for Trevor Bauer, it did raise some eyebrows because they were not a contender. And it turns out that they want to make a big push this year in 2020. So they were jumping the gun a little bit to get a pitcher of that caliber last summer at the deadline, maybe because they didn't think they would, you know, um, have as good a chance this offseason. That's debatable. Um, But that was an exception to the rule. For the most part, you do see, you know, uh, the obvious sort of contending teams trading for players who will get them over the hump. Mm hmm. And then the last thing is transaction information. So if a player gets, uh, you know, DFA'd, for example, it's kind of a lower level fringy player, we do downgrade them a little bit because at that point, the team that has put them effectively on notice and they've lost their leverage, you know, so they will go for a little bit less. So, you know, we do ding them a little bit for that, Um, you know, but the... um, you know, but so in any sort of tra- excuse me transaction like that, we try to reflect the numbers uh, in, in the numbers, sort of the new information. So, you know, now that Mookie Betts has been traded to the Dodgers, we know that the Dodgers are not giving him up. Um, so actually, you know, his value is a little bit higher now because of that, uh, because they're they're committed to to winning. You know, if if for some reason they totally fell apart by June, maybe that's a different story. But the um, the fact is now he's it, it's clear that his value is even higher based on the fact that he's been traded to a World Series contender. Mm-hmm. And a perfect real-time example of that uh, DFA situation you were talking about is Harleen Garcia. Mm-hmm. He was just DFA'd the other day, and at the time we had him at $3.2 million in surplus value. So that's not, that's not breaking any banks. That's not a blockbuster deal type of player. But that's a solid reliever that's that's a mid-range mid to low range prospect in return we were thinking when he was dfa'd we considered okay maybe since he's out of options and he was seen by one team as a dfa candidate maybe it's slightly smaller return but still a return of substance and then it was just a straight waiver claim by the giants so we have adjusted him accordingly he's now at 0.8 million in median trade value and we kind of 
acknowledge that, hey, with the information we had, we might have been wrong on that one. Yeah, and sometimes it's a timing problem as well. Like at this point, maybe the 40-man rosters are all full, and he didn't really make that much of a difference to an, uh, one team or another. Um, so we have to factor that in as well. Right. So is there anything else you want to hit on as far as um, how we do what we do? Um, I think we'll uh, see how it goes in the future if any other questions come up, but I think we've covered it for now. All right, so now let's... Uh... Let's transition on to something that we have not been able to keep ourselves from mentioning multiple <laughs> times throughout the episode already, and that's the biggest news in baseball of the last week and a half, and that's the Mookie Betts deal. Um, and w where, where that's uh, where we come into play in that kind of trade. Yeah. So you know, one of the things that struck me um, as curious is. You know, the, the media tends to focus on the players that are, trade, that are traded and less so about the money. But if you look at our numbers, you know, next to Mookie, who we valued at the time at a little over 50, the next highest component that was traded was the $48 million in cash from Boston <laughs> to L.A. to cover David Price's underwater contract. We had Price underwater uh, at 55. So he was owed $96 million at the time, still is, um, over the next three years, which is way more than he's worth. He's a 34-year-old pitcher in decline with a whole bunch of injury risk. So all of that sort of factored into our calculations of his field value. And we sort of validated it against the free agent market. And, you know, we've seen other, other articles where other GMs just said, yeah, if he were a free agent now, maybe he would get three years, 40 to 45. So we were right in that sort of ballpark of, you know, valuing him at about 41 million in, in certain uh, field value. He's owed 96. So that makes it that. So we felt pretty confident that he was worth like negative 55. Um, so. The fact that, you know, Boston paid all that money, you know, to the Dodgers to cover it was significant. It didn't really get a whole lot of play. What they were focused on was, you know, the fact that Mookie was traded. They were focused on the good aspects of David Price. Yes, he can still be a valuable pitcher. He's at probably two-ish, maybe three at the top war player now. Um, and, you know, and the, and the return and all the chaos that was around the first iteration of that and then eventually the return of Verdugo, Downs, and Wong to, to Boston. Um, but I just wanted to make the point that the money was really important in this one. Right, yeah. And that actually, um, when I first saw the uh, reports that they were trying to package bets with price, I laughed a little bit. Because um, <laughs> it does make sense. But it's also the kind of trade that we see on the site a lot. And it, it reminds me of, I think it was a couple weeks after we initially launched and some some mastermind put together a trade where he had the Angels packaging Albert Pujols contract with Mike Trout to <laughs> offload the Pujols contract, and that's that's a that's a video game type trade. You yes. never see that in real life, except we just did. Yeah, and you will from time to time see kind of a money dump trade. Um, you know, this off season, the Giants and Angels made one that I thought was was interesting. You know, the Angels traded. Zach Cozart, who's basically worth nothing. Um, sure enough, he was DFA'd after the Giants acquired him. You know, he, you know, he was owed like twelve point seven million or something. And but they packaged him with their first round draft pick, Will Wilson, who's a shortstop prospect. You know, their first rounder. So he had some real value. You know, and so the the Giants basically bought 
Will Wilson by taking on Zach Cozart's contract and then dumping him. That was effectively a money for a prospect trade. And you will see that from time to time. It's not that common. But to your point, seeing a money dump like this, especially associated with a superstar like Mookie, is very rare. Yeah, and that that kind of situation um, with that Cozart like money for a prospect type deal is a very good way for us to uh, to check our values more or less and mm-hmm. see that we're on the right track um, because we can we can zero out two of the three assets in the deal. Nothing really went to. Anaheim to the Los Angeles Angels. Sorry, <laughs> he was a very minor Angels. prospect. It was uh, yeah, yeah, somebody in the uh, in the zeros, I think. <laughs> yeah, so almost nothing there, and everyone agreed that it was almost nothing. Yeah, and then the Giants clearly valued Cozart as nothing. That's why they cut him instantly. Mm-hmm. So now what you're left with is okay, Cozart's making twelve and a half mil. The prospect that they acquired has to be worth somewhere in that range. That's right. It's a good test. <clears throat> and we were close. Yes. <laughs> um, but then back to back to bets. I'm interested to hear what you think about the reworked deal and how it differed from the original deal and how the values might have lined up um, and comparing the two. So it was interesting because we just talked about uh, the change in value from Booster Grotterall when we found out that there was a health concern there. Um, and it was it was actually twofold because it was a a health concern and b higher probability of him being a reliever. Uh, relievers are are not as valued as as much as starters. If you just look at the free agent market and see what you know Garrett Cole gets versus what Will Smith gets, you can see a huge difference in AAVs between starters and relievers. You can use that as a general guideline. You know, for the most part, relievers are worth even the best reliever is worth about half of the best starter. But you don't really know in this case what Gratterall was going to be. It just sort of increased his reliever risk uh, a bit more. Anyway, so the first iteration before we had that information, you know, had him at 21, and then we downgraded him eventually after all that came out to about 14. Um, the and and so he was supposed to go to Boston originally with Verdugo, who he had at 47, and so that. Um, you know, that seemed like a bit of an overpay, understandably. One of the things, to your point earlier, we didn't factor in as much was the October effect of Mookie going to the Dodgers. So, you know, if you if you, if you you add that in, it was probably a difference of around 10 or so, which in the Mookie market is totally fine because you overpay for a superstar. There's a hidden acquisition cost there. What happened after the whole chaos that ensued after that was – I give Boston credit. I give Haim Bloom credit because he affected, you know, whatever his reasons for rejecting Gratterall was, he ended up with a better deal based on our Mm -hmm. sort of information. He ended up getting, you know, a prospect that was, in fact, 21 uh, in Jeter Downs or right around there and a throw in as well. And Connor Wong is worth like four. Um, So that's 21 million worth of value. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for that clarification. So he basically went back to the same deal in terms of value that Gratterall was supposed to have been with a little bit of a kicker as well, just to get the deal done. Because at that point, everybody, I think, just wanted to get the deal done. So, you know, it ended up being a little bit more of an overpay for the Dodgers, but I, I don't think they're complaining. And that does signal to me that it was an overpay by the Dodgers. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, if this if they were fine with this all along, then why not just do this in the first place? Mm-hmm. If they... 
that they truly did value Downs and Gratterall equally. It does make sense to have Gratterall on their roster. Their bullpen is their weakest spot, whereas Downs is pretty blocked up the middle long term. Um, so if if they truly did value both equally, then this makes a lot more sense from a roster standpoint. Mm-hmm. So the fact that this wasn't the original trade tells me that they were okay overpaying a little bit, that they're conceding that, yes, original plan was this, we're having to give up more in this revised deal, but we're okay with that. Yeah. And, you know, frankly, we're... I'm, I think that's fine. I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. You, you, you don't want Mookie. You, you want Mookie. You're going to have to overpay. Now, I will if mention. If there is a player to overpay for, it's Mookie Betts. Yeah, he's the second best player in baseball. I think. You know, I think it's pretty, pretty much a consensus view. Now, you're only getting him for one year. Now, what are the other things I should mention that the Dodgers are getting, which is sort of a hidden value in addition to the October benefit, is the draft pick that they're going to get if they mm-hmm. give him a QO and he accepts. He doesn't accept it. And there's maybe also one could argue. You know, the fact that he's in-house now, maybe they can extend him and get a longer-term contract mm-hmm. out of him. Maybe that might be a little easier now that he's playing for them. Uh, but let's say he doesn't, and let's say he's just a free agent testing the market. They would, uh, they will obviously QO him, and let's say he rejects it, and they'll still get a draft pick out of it. So that's another thing that kind of helps his value. Um, yes, and that draft pick will probably have a value somewhere in the neighborhood of Connor Wong or so. I think I, I think a little maybe bit higher. The word on the street is this coming draft is a good one and a deep one. Right. So those are actually going to go a little bit higher. And I think you, know, you, you see some activity with draft picks being exchanged. In fact, the, the Dodgers did get a draft pick in the Gratterall to Minnesota uh, deal, in the side deal that eventually happened with Maeda going to Minnesota. They got a draft pick from Minnesota, I think, for that reason, uh, to help balance that out. Uh, but to clarify, the draft that Mookie's qualifying offer would be for would be the 2021 Correct. draft, yeah. not this upcoming. Yeah, uh, but your point still does stand. Um, I believe that one is meant to be deep as well. Yeah, so so we can't always assume an overpay, but the you know in this case I think it, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know you're getting a superstar player. You really want to win the World Series if you're the Dodgers, and you know there was there were complications. Just get the deal done. Mm-hmm. And getting back to that extension bit. Um, as you mentioned, Betts might not be the exact guy where that's really a factor here. It seems from all reporting, now things could change if he goes and wins a title in L.A. and he just loves it there. Uh, but by all reporting right now, he wants to hit free agency, mm-hmm. both for himself, for the players' union. Um, he's feeling a lot of pressure to get out there and get that mega deal. Um, and he has every right to do so. He could set records in free agency. Um, but we saw last offseason the Paul Goldschmidt trade which was essentially a trade and sign. They extended Mm -hmm. him before the season even began. And so there is that little bit of a chance there and that little bit of added value as a result. That's right. Now, we can't assume that. We know that there's Mm -hmm. a little bit of interpretation there that that, some analysts and experts might say, yeah, it's easier to sign him if he's in-house. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, We're not going to assume that, but I I wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. So after that... Um, so one of the things we do is we try to be as transparent as possible, and we try to sort of say, okay, how is our model doing against real life? Um, you know, because we're trying to, you know, on the one hand, the site is about having fun with trade proposals. Uh, that is really the, the thing that we're trying to do is the service we're trying to provide for baseball fans is, hey, you got a trade proposal? You know, let's see, let's see if it's reasonably fair. 
Um, so that's the whole thing. Let's try to get our values as close as possible to real life so that it can be even more fun and hopefully more realistic. We know we're not going to be perfect. We're going to be over. We're going to be under here and there. Um, so we're just, but we're just trying to be honest about it. So the, so how is the model doing in that regard? And and we think it's doing reasonably well. We're in the 80s. I'm going to call up our numbers here. Um, the, you know, we mentioned earlier that there's a time lag sometimes between when we get the data versus, uh, you know, perhaps earlier in off season when we don't have all the updated data. So we're sort of measuring it in two different ways. Now, just to be completely transparent, we're not taking credit for the sort of the adjustments we make after we get the data. So if we just go with how are we doing measuring the values at the time of each trade with what we had, right now we're at 82% with a variance of plus or minus 4.8. Good, not perfect, good. If we then say, okay, how did the model do, you know, once we got the data updated um, and we sort of backtrack and said, well, if we'd have made the trade at that point, what would it look like? We're at 90.1% with a variance of 2.6. I'll take that. Nine out of yeah. ten times we're right. <laughs> Pretty close. <clears throat> do you do you happen to have the trade deadline numbers on you as well, or? I don't because the uh, uh, I've only just started doing this in gotcha. this particular format for this off season. But so, I'd, I'd say that feels like an improvement. It does feel like an improvement. Um, you know, and we'll, what we're trying to do to that point is continue to improve to make it as, mm -hmm. as close as possible. It's a wacky thing to try to do to try to try to apply publicly available data to what is effectively a private market try to try to impose sort of an efficient sort of thinking onto an inefficient market you're never going to be perfect i think right. everyone knows that so if we can try to get in the 80s and 90s and be pretty close so that people think yeah that's a reasonably fair deal and have fun with trade proposals we think that's a win mm -hmm. and and our goal isn't hey we say that this player is worth 6.7 million dollars and that's what he's worth you're wrong that's that's not where we're coming from at right. all we just want to create an environment where fans can come make their proposals and have them be as realistic as possible yeah and we also don't want to be dictatorial about it like you must use our values only that's not the case if you want to say you know that's going to be an overpay go ahead we've, we've coded the site so it takes three levels of overpays if you think chris bryant is going to go higher than what we think and you i wouldn't be surprised go for it you know, and see if other people sort of agree with you in the comments. And, I, you know, I, that's fine. We have sort of a sort of a market that we've created here in trade proposals. And I think that's part of the fun. And it's we're always more than open to feedback, criticism, critique, um, just opinions in general. Some of our best feedback has allowed us to make changes that really probably should have been made in the first place. But because we're just a couple guys managing 3,000 plus players, <laughs> maybe we missed one or two. It happens. Um, yep. But when, when players seem, oh, maybe this guy might be a little high, maybe he might be a little low, we're always more than happy to take a look at it. Sometimes we'll come back with a full explanation of why they are where they were. Yep. And sometimes we'll say, wow, you're right. We agree with you. This doesn't pass the smell test. There's some sort of other factor at work here. 
let's make an adjustment. That's right. So, you know, I will always appreciate it when, you know, particularly fans of, you know, if you're a real, you know, serious fan of your team and you, you may know more than us about some of the details, mm -hmm. particularly on the prospect side, you know, oh my gosh, that guy's overweight and, you know, he's having a bad year and that may not have shown up on our radar yet. And, you know, so things like that, you know, we're happy to get the feedback as well and, and take a second look because, you know, we may, that may allow us to sort of anticipate what the, you know, prospect rating service might change later, or the projection service system might change later, only because you might have something that we don't know yet. So, and then, you know, like I said, the, you know, the, the, the point is to have fun. You know, if you think it's undervalued and you think it'll go more, do an overpay, that's fine. And, and we'll see where it goes. One of the big pieces of feedback that we, we continue to get is, can we make it variable by team? I mentioned this earlier. And I think that's a great idea. Um, I don't want it just to be the one sort of, you know, solid number in the long. We're always trying to evolve the site and enhance the features of the site. So I would love it if we could make an improvement and we're working on it down the road where, hey, if you're a fan of, you know, the Kansas City Royals, you know, you would say no to this trade or maybe adjust it and counter offer and say, you know, we would take that one for Merrifield, but you got to up your number. I think that would be a lot of fun. And we're working on scenarios like that. Mm -hmm. And while we're on the topic of improvements, is there anything else you can uh, tease out that might be coming to the site in the near future? Um, so um, we're going to make uh, that that um, that trade tracker, as I call it, how we're doing it's real life, a little bit more prominent on the site. Right now, we've been doing it just in sort of updated article format. But I want to I want to I want to put like a counter on the site on the homepage, so it's very transparent how doing and you'll see it adjusted in real time as, as trades come through <clears throat> excuse me that's one thing um, but we've got some big plans in sort of the longer term it's going to take us a while to kind of code things i just sort of alluded to one which is sort of increasing the variability team by team that's going to take us a while to do because there's a lot of sort of if then sort of algorithmic sort of changes that would have to happen it becomes kind of a a game theory sort of approach it gets a lot more complicated if we do it right we could do it kind of in a simple way or we could do it a more complicated way and so that's what we're sort of sort of thinking about now um that's going to take us a little while to sort out um but the point is there are definitely going to be more enhancements in the future and we'll continue to kind of make the site more fun and, and, and better as we go all right awesome um, so unless you have anything else to add, I think that'll do it for our first episode. Yeah. Thanks everybody for joining us. I hope you found this informative. Um, and, uh, as we get into this series a little bit more deeply, we'll be happy to take your questions mm -hmm. and, uh, and input and we'll discuss those on the next podcast. Yeah. Let us know if you have any questions, any opinions. Um, you can shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com. You can shoot us a tweet at baseball values on Twitter. Uh, my personal Twitter is jive underscore oak, and John's is at bitzer underscore. Is it bitzer digital or bitzer? Yeah, just one. Digital? Yeah, all smushed together. All right, at bitzer digital. And so, yeah, feel free to reach out to us and expect more from us in the very near future. Thanks for listening, everybody. Happy trading. Have a good one, folks. All right.